Well, can I invite you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn to the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to be in chapter 4, but if we just could just read um, a few verses from previous chapters, just so that you don't get your bearings of where we are. So Nehemiah chapter 1, firstly, and want to read to you just the first four verses, so not too long. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped. So he's being asked there about the Jews who returned to Jerusalem under Ezra to rebuild uh, the, the, the temple and to rebuild the city. So he asked concerning them, concerning Jerusalem. And then in verse 3, they, his brethren, said to him, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So this is a great discouragement. A great move of God commenced under Ezra. Thousands of men and women had their spirits stirred to go back and it's all come to a halt. Um, They were intimidated to make the work stop and they are reproached and you can imagine the mocking this would have led to in the nations. I thought God was at work among you. I thought God was working and it's now come to a halt. Nehemiah's response in verse 4 is what we should always do when we're desperate, pray. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Then if you look into verse 11, it's quite clear Nehemiah is willing even to be the answer to the problem. He offers himself to the Lord to, if you like, go back and and deal with the situation. He says, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him, that is Nehemiah, mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So it's quite clear Nehemiah is planning at this point to speak to the king about the situation. Now, turning over into chapter 2, as I say, the rest is history. The king, the Lord puts it in the king's heart to grant Nehemiah's request to go back to the land. And we come to chapter 2. Nehemiah has surveyed the walls to establish what he's doing in Jerusalem. And then we read in verse 15, I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials, that is the leadership of Israel, did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us arise and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, the official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us and despised at us and said, what is this 
thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we as servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. And it seems the people were stirred. And then in verse 1 you come to of chapter 3, Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. And they consecrated it, hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the tower of Hananel. And in the rest of chapter 3 you just have this sense of momentum. This list of names and next to him and next to him and next to him and next to him. They're totally unified in the work to rebuild the walls. And that brings us then that little sort of of speed tour to where we are this evening. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. No sooner have they started building the walls, difficulty comes. But it so happened... And there you introduce these names again. We've read about them this evening. Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And we'll close the reading there. Let's pray once more. We thank you, O God, that you have given the word, that you have preserved the word and kept it pure in every age. We thank you that we do not need to doubt or question what has been said We are reading words that you have inspired. We are reading then the wisdom and mind of God. And we pray that that which you want us to understand from these few verses in chapter 4, that you would give us insight that would serve to bless us and help us and instruct us to live lives worthy of the name of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've titled this sermon, Adversaries Aroused. Nehemiah is a book in particular which provides ample instruction about the methods, the schemes and the wiles of satanic opposition um, to the work of God. And we see here that no sooner have God's people set their heart and set their mind to do a good work, to, to be Godward in their lives, to embrace the call of God on their lives, do they face serious spiritual assault. And it's like that in the Christian life, isn't it? You know, why is it that so often trouble comes into our lives, whether family troubles, personal troubles, when we would do good? I often find that, you know, oftentimes in my, speaking for myself, I can't speak this for you, why do we always have our worst nights as a family with the children on Saturday nights before the Lord's Day? Why is it often, there's often tensions in the car on the way to chapel? You know, so often when we set our hearts, when we set our minds to do what God has said, there comes opposition straight away, doesn't it? And it's like that for any church. And sometimes you just think to yourself, don't you, wouldn't it just be a lot easier if we stopped? Oh, for an easy life. But the Godward life, the life that God has called us to, my dear friends, is a life of spiritual warfare. And there's no getting away from it. 
The great Jonathan Edwards said, God has appointed the whole life to be as a battle. The state of rest so as to be out of danger without the need of watching or fighting is for another world. God has saved us for good works prepared beforehand for us to walk in. It's quite clear that Nehemiah was saying to them that what he was calling them to was a good work. Verse 18 of chapter 2, they said, let us ride and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. And so God has provided this for us to show us there's a direct correlation between doing a good work, going Godward with your life, seeking the Lord and his will and spiritual opposition. There's no such thing as being in the will of God without spiritual opposition. We have to contend with this. Sometimes we might look at other churches um, that seem to be flourishing and bursting at the seams with full seats. And it seems just as if things are just seamless and easy. And we might have been through in our experience as Christians, I'm sure every one of us has been through church troubles and church trials and church tensions and pain and agony and anguish. And we ask ourselves why. But you see, Satan doesn't bother with anything that's not a threat to him. Satan will always attack a cause or a work that concerns him. And I would propose to you, dear friends, that Satan is more threatened by a small church with few people as an open Bible than a huge church with a great rock band where the Bible is relegated to the periphery. And you might ask yourself in your life, why does my life seem to have so many problems? You might look at the unbelievers like Asaph did and go, there doesn't seem to be any problems in their life quite on the same scale. Or you you look at other so-called Christians whose children are, are going on and all sorts of things in your life and you say, why me? Well, my dear friends, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to contend with adversity and adversaries. Now, the first thing I want you to see is this, the power behind adversaries. You see, we are introduced to Sambalat and Tobiah. We were told about them first in chapter 2, but they, they, they appear again in chapter 4, the verses I want to speak on this evening, the first three verses. They're furious, indignant, they mock the Jews. But I want you to see there's a power behind their opposition. There is a satanic rage behind their rage. Satan so hates God and he so hates righteousness that when one believer takes a little baby step forward in the Christian life, he is furious. And it might to you seem like a pretty inconsequential step reading your Bible more or praying, or whatever it is, church attend, whatever the spiritual thing is. But you can be sure that if you step forward and move towards God, or begin to seek God with greater seriousness, someone else is going to be angry and furious. We read in Revelation 12, verse 17, that Satan is depicted as a dragon, who is, quote, enraged with the church, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Do you see there, the particular rage of God is against those who would keep 
the testimony of Jesus Christ and keep God's commandments. Is that not simply the definition of a true Christian? And so therefore, these, these, these men, Sambalat and Tobiah, are simply vehicles for Satan to express his rage. What we see here is accusation. We see mocking. We see deception. This is not, this has just not got Satan's handiwork all over it. And so what this teaches us is what I would call biblical realism. We need to be realistic. Satan is still active. He's still angry. And he will oppose this church any opportunity that he can. Now, it's worth remembering Satan is bound, but he's bound on a long chain. And it is a long chain, <laughs> but he's bound. There's a limit to his power, but there is a still a fair degree of scope to which he can move. Now, you may have remembered that, hands up, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll, you'll know the, 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 what I'm mentioning. There's, a, there's an incident in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, in the story, in his pilgrim, in his journey, he comes across two lions. And in the story, the lions had intimidated and caused many to turn back. Now, there's a Bunyan in, his, in, the, in the narrative brackets this, and he says the lions were chained, but Christians saw not the chains. And he was afraid, and he thought to himself to go back after them, for he thought that nothing but death was before him. But the porter at the lodge, whose name is watchful, perceiving that Christian made a halt as if he would go back, cried unto him, saying, Is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained and are placed there for a trial of faith where it is, and for the discovery of those that have none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come unto thee. And I saw he went on, trembling for fear of the lions, but taking good heed to the direction of the porter. He heard them roar, but he did them no harm. And here in Sambalat and Tobiah, they roar, they bark, they scream, they shout. But if we were to go on in the narrative, they carry on, they, set, they pray to God, they set their hearts to the work God has called them to. See, Satan can intimidate the church, Satan can shout at the church, Satan can accuse your conscience, Satan can whisper lies to your head. But he can't harm you. And if you resist the devil, as they do, he will flee from you and we could say that we are if Nehemiah's generation were under attack from Satan we need to expect it even more Satan's anger has been increased ever since Calvary Revelation says woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows his time was short why were they the target of attack? Because what they had done was great. Well, we're going to see it wasn't that great, and they were told so. <laughs> because they were mighty, because they were humanly doing something amazing. No, as we're going to see, their efforts were pretty feeble. Their efforts were pretty pathetic. They were quite feeble. In fact, a lot of the things that were said were probably true. But they were about a good work. They were about a good work. I have made the mistake in my short Christian life thus far too often to conclude when things go wrong that I must be outside the will of God or that something's, going, that something's gone wrong in my life. And sometimes we can find that opposition in our life is a signal of God's disapproval and we're very tempted, aren't we, to change course. 
But actually we see that here it's, it's because they're in the path of obedience that opposition comes. We should actually conclude when things are, uh, when attack is coming from the evil one in all his various ways, we should actually say Satan obviously sees something here worth attacking. He sees someone here worth sidelining. Derek Thomas says, Satan hates a good thing and will always endeavour to destroy it. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ. We considered his baptism this morning when he pledged and and, and engaged himself to save our souls. He accepted the calling that he was called to as a servant of the Lord. What does the Spirit do? Straight away. Drives him where? Into the wilderness. To have 40 days of testing by Satan. So let us not despair when opposition and problems come within the church or without the church. Let us see such troubles and difficulties as seals on the work. So that's the power behind adversaries. Now if you were to read Nehemiah, you would see that there's various schemes that are highlighted through these individuals. Today, we're going to just simply see the mocking and the ridicule of Satan. If you were to read later on, you'd see intimidation, discouragement, fear, and temptation to compromise. But thirdly, let us see then the method of ridicule. That is the focus this evening. This is perhaps one of Satan's oldest tricks in the book, and it is very effective. You remember the saying when you were at school, um, sticks and bones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. What a load of codswallop. It's not true, is it? In fact, it's the opposite. Words can hurt. You get a bruise from someone punching you in the face and you can be over it in a couple of weeks. But words that you have said to you at school, at secondary school, some of us carry with us for the rest of our lives. They leave open wounds, always so easily exposed. And Satan knows nothing discourages God's people more than words. Words to discourage God's people. Dare I say that many of God's most powerful servants have had their energy and courage sat by discouraging words. There's a warning here, I think, to beware of discouraging one another. <laughs> if I could just... Fabio's not here, he's not asked me to say this, this is just me just saying it as his friend <laughs> who's a pastor and knows what it's like to pastor. And I'm not saying this is what any of you have done. <laughs> but some church members feel it's their duty to keep their pastors humble by discouraging words. What they fail to realise is most of their pastors are probably discouraged anyway. The power of words. These words are to discourage. You're so feeble. What you're doing is accomplishing nothing. Will you fortify yourselves? Verse 3, Tobiah, what you've done is pathetic. If a fox goes up on the wall, he will break down their stone wall. You know, many a great warrior has bravely charged in the face of cannon fire and the musket But when they come back and perhaps the battle didn't go to plan and then the mocking and the ridicule came, they fell apart when their reputation was in tatters. Satan knows that if he can weaken our morale, if he can belittle us, 
he knows he's succeeded. We can, we can be sidelined in the work of God. Now, what's the first mocking ridicule that he gives them? He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? And I think this is interesting. This is a, in terms of a gospel application. It's the, isn't it interesting that Satan, when you're not a Christian, if someone's not a Christian, Satan doesn't make you feel feeble. He puffs you up. You are good. You're not a sinner. You're not a terrible sinner. You don't deserve the judgment of God. You're quite good as you are. You know, you, you, you've done a lot of good things. Don't believe what they say to you about being a sinner. And then you get converted and it's the other extreme, isn't it? You're so pathetic. You're so wretched. You're too great a sinner for God to have mercy on you. You're a failure. You've made so many mistakes. Why would God use you? How, how crafty and wicked is Satan? That he would, depending on where you are, if you're in the kingdom or out the kingdom, he, he, he's just a liar and a deceiver. What are these feeble Jews doing? You're incompetent for such a great work. What, what even possessed your mind to think you could accomplish such a great work as rebuilding the walls? This word, translated feeble here, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to denote something that is withering or fading away. He's, he's, Sambalat wants them to feel a sense of their utter weakness. And doesn't Satan do this today? You're such a pathetic church. You're such a small church. What can you do? Your best days are over. Or you're too old. Or you're too infirm. Or you've, you've got too much of a messed up life. You've not, or to a younger person, you've not had the experience. You failed in the past. Your track record. You'll just repeat the same mistakes again. He will always try and focus our attention on our shortcomings. And of course, if you're not a Christian, he will, he will, he will fill you your attention with all your supposed greatness. You don't need God. You're fine as you are. Now, there's a sense in which there's a, as with all Satan's deception, there's a degree of truth, right? I mean, we are feeble. <laughs> They were feeble. We are only men. Earthen vessels, Paul says, jars of clay. And what happens to a jar of clay, an earthen vessel? If you drop it, it what? It smashes. We're so easily broken, we're frail flowers. But here's where the lie is. Though we are feeble in and of ourselves, in what he's doing is he's making us introspective. He's focusing them and he focuses us on ourselves. He turns us inward. And of course we're feeble, but he doesn't, what he hasn't said here is how great is our God whose hand is upon us. And that's what started them when they began to rebuild. Nehemiah tells them in chapter 2 verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me. As Zerubbabel said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God has put his treasure, Paul says, in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You see, Satan wants any church and any individual and any Christian to be so focused on their own weakness that they lose sight of the treasury of grace that they have in the Lord. And the great weaponry that God has for them by his spirit. You are weak. You are strong. You are strong in the Lord. 
Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And if you're not a Christian here, you don't actually realise how weak you are. You're so fragile. You, the Bible tells you that you, you, your life holds together in him. The, the atoms that make up your physical body are, are, are held by him. All things are through him and of him and for him. And at any single moment, God could take away your breath. Just like that. So you need to embrace your weakness in order that you would receive God's strength. And that strength can only be known through the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified in weakness for a needy sinner like you. So feebleness is the first method of Satan. But secondly, he, he points out their defenselessness. You're defenseless. Will they fortify themselves? Now this is perhaps one of, the, I have found in my experience, one of the most acutely difficult accusations to receive in your mind. In other words, you're all alone. You're all alone. You're vulnerable. And there's nothing more discouraging to a Christian than to have a sense of isolation and being alone. It causes fear. It causes paralysis. Don't step out and serve the Lord. It will make you vulnerable. To pastors, he will suggest they'll lose their churches for bold preaching. To a younger generation, he says, you'll lose your jobs. You take a stand for the Lord. To the elderly, he says, your children and grandchildren will despise you if you speak the truth to them. You're all alone. You're defenseless. And again, to the unbeliever, he says the exact opposite. You're fine as you are. You don't need God. You don't need a helper. You've been doing fine thus far. It won't be as bad as they say when you die. You won't stand alone, naked and exposed before the living God and have to give an account. Be fine. What a liar and deceiver he is. And I think we are perhaps prone to this one in our day and age, aren't we? Around us, just north, east, south, west, wherever you look, where it feels like the enemy's at the gates. And we're all alone. But our Lord has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The third method is to persuade them that they're naive and misguided will they offer sacrifices verse 2 will they complete it in a day will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish stones the burn now this mention of offering sacrifices is most likely a a reference to Ezra 3 in verse 3 I haven't got time to turn there but we read in Ezra verse, chapter 3 and verse 3 that God's people, once they had gone back to the land, they wanted to start as they meant to go on. And they basically devoted themselves to the Lord. They offered sacrifices to the Lord and pledged the whole project to the Lord. It was an act of worship. And in effect, what they're saying is, is <laughs> do you really think that the work of God this great work you've been called to can move forward simply through spiritual sacrifices? Do you really think the church can grow through praying? Are you going to pray the walls up? To, to put it in contemporary terms, do you really believe the church could flourish simply by upholding the means of grace? Preaching, prayer, ordinances. 
you're misguided. You're naive. Your trust in God is simplistic and foolish. Do you really think that God will give you success? And of course, to the unbeliever, you don't need a saviour. Don't be so, so foolish to think that unless you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be lost forever and ever, suffering under the conscious torment of God. You don't need the once for all sacrifice of God. I, are you really suggesting that you can be saved by a man who was crucified on a wooden cross? That that can take away your sin? You're naive. You're misguided. Some today would say, do you really believe people will want to come to a church that believes in old-fashioned Bible preaching and simple reverent worship? Don't be so stupid. And he wants us and the Lord's people to feel a sense of hopelessness too. Notice they say, will they complete it in a day? In other words, you have no idea how big the project is. You will never finish it. It's a hopeless task. I know when I first moved to Eastbourne, um, you know, coming from London, you sort of always assume that because anywhere outside of London is not as big as London, and I just sort of thought it'd be easier to go to a smaller place. But actually, I realised Eastbourne's quite a big place, and there's very little gospel presence there, really. There's a couple of little chapels. And I remember just walking around with a little flock, and I, and I remember thinking, where do we start? Where do we start? How can we reach this town for Christ? This overwhelming sense of our smallness. And, and the temptation was to believe there's no point even starting. Why start if you can't complete? It's a very powerful lie and deception. If we are hearing such things in our heads, we need to remember that the opposite is true. Often the Lord's work begins small. The Lord began with 12 disciples. The church began with 120 in the upper room. Many a church has been revived by two or three elderly ladies praying for revival. If you read history. Our smallness is actually our strength. That's the lie. That's what Satan doesn't want you to realise. Because God's strength, these are all familiar things you know, but we need to have them focused in our attention. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Think of Gideon. What was Gideon's problem? That he had too many men. So God had to strip Gideon's army back to 300 to fight an army of thousands. Why? That the glory would be to God. I believe in one of God's sovereign, mysterious purposes, one of the reasons he allows churches to be stripped back from time to time is that God will get all the glory when the church is built up. That all the Lord's people would know the Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. And if you're not a Christian here, when Satan says, would salvation really come through something as pathetic as a man being crucified in weakness? The answer is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ bore in his body on that cross the entire weight of your sin and the punishment your sin deserves. 
and he died and was buried and three days later rose again that we would have new life. It's amazing that one man's death once for all can bring salvation to a number of men and women, boys and girls that no man can count. They also, um, Satan also wants to mislead them or to distort the truth. He says, will they revive the stones from a heap of rubbish, stones that are burnt? Now, this was a lie. Archaeology has shown, and we know from history, that the only part of the building that was burnt to the ground was the gates. But the rest of the wall wasn't burnt. There was plenty of resources to rebuild the wall. There was plenty of stones and there was plenty of rubble. This was a twisting of the truth. This was to make something seem bigger than it is. And often that's often the Lord's, the Satan's way, isn't it? He, in our personal lives, in our churches, he wants us to think the problems are actually bigger than they really are. You know, with our loved ones that aren't converted, he just wants us to think it's utterly impossible. But it's not. No one's too hard for the Lord. And and it's like that with our circumstances. You know, oftentimes if you have a practical need or a financial need, you look around you and you think, where's help going to come from? But our helper is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The cattle of the high hills are his. There's nothing that he can't do. And time and time again, the Lord proves to us that he is sufficient to provide for us what we need to do what he's called us to do. He equips the called. The last method that Satan uses, we're coming to the end now, is in verse 3. And Tobiah steps on the scene, and he's an Ammonite, and it is to belittle their accomplishments. A fox. I mean, talk about exaggeration. I mean, even if the wall was pretty prophetic at this point, and even if they hadn't got very high, Tobiah is suggesting that if a little fox walks on the wall, the wall's going to fall down. There, there, I mean, that is insult. I mean, that is, that is mockery at its, at its height. What he's saying is, is, what you do for the Lord is so pathetic that it's embarrassing. I know a lot of preachers feel like that about their sermons. They're just an embarrassment. But they're pathetic. And, and we can feel like that about our churches and what we do as churches. We're just, compared to that church or that church, it's just... Pathetic. But this is exaggeration. And this is an old trick in the book to make you believe that the situation is really worse than it is. I think we don't actually understand if we like we considered yesterday the value of dry bones. That even one step in a church of a few people one step of reformation one step forward it might feel like insignificant but when we understand the powers that are against us the flesh the world and the devil when we understand how fallen and dark this world and that no one can move towards god and godliness apart from the work of the holy spirit we have to actually understand that there is no inconsequential step towards the lord I was, I was only recently saying to, to our folk at Eastbourne, we just adopted a Psalter. Um, I was explaining to the church that the Bible tells us to sing psalms as well as hymns, and it's great that you sing psalms. Um, but I, you know, and I was making the point to them that 
even though people might think, well, there's nothing, there's no big deal about that. We've just put some salters in the, in the pew chairs. There's no, that's not a significant, it's hardly revival. But I was making the point that if the scriptures tell us to sing psalms, and we've decided to sing psalms, we've made a step forward in the things of God. Satan won't like that. We should be on our guard. But it's changing the way we think. Satan will attack small steps. And actually, this wasn't a limited this wasn't a limited accomplishment. This was a massive accomplishment. The city and the town and the walls have been lying in ruins, and a whole group of people have been roused to go and rebuild these walls. But it's more than that. Nehemiah goes towards the king, and if he speaks out of turn, he could be executed on the spot. But not only does he speak in a way that wasn't really befitting for a cupbearer, he makes this audacious request that all the resources should be given to him. Oh, and by the way, you need to release me for a number of years to go back. And the king grants him every single request. This church here, just looking at you now, is a miracle of grace. If you're a true born again Christian, the evidence of God's reality and power is in this room. Now we can view ourselves as the world views us, as pathetic and small and and, and as, as, as worthless. Or we can view ourselves the way the Bible views us. One of my favourite sayings or words that ever came out of the Saviour's words, and there's lots, and it's, it feels wrong to say I have favourite things that Jesus said because it's all amazing, isn't it? But it's when he said, little flock. The Lord Jesus had a little flock and he loved them. And they weren't beneath him. And they were significant to him. Now again, just to say as a word of application, if you're not a Christian here, you know, Satan does the opposite in your life. So when he comes to a believer and says, you're so pathetic, what you've done is so pointless and such a waste of time, he comes to the unbeliever and says, your life is really good. And uh, you can live a really fruitful life without God. And, and look at, like Nebuchadnezzar, look at, look at what you've got, look what you've accomplished. Isn't it great? Your soul won't implode and it won't fall apart. You can endure, you can go on without God, you can do it all by yourself. Again, all right, let's just say what they say is true. All right, the wall was pretty pathetic. Okay, but the issue isn't how the work begins. The issue is whom begins the work. It was what God will do through them that mattered. Not as it presently seemed at that particular moment. I love the illustration, well it's not an illustration, it really happened, but it illustrates this point. When our disciples had, what, five loaves, two fish. That's all they had. Can't feed a multitude. But when it's placed into the Lord Jesus' hands, it fed everyone and there was some left over. And you look at your life and go, I can't do this, I just can't do this. I can't do what God's called me to do. I can't, I can't work in this environment. I can't... Be the husband that I need to be. Be the wife that I need to be. I can't be the Sunday school teacher, whatever it is. No, you can't. But he is sufficient for you. And the Lord, you place your limited resources into his hand. He can give you grace to go on, honouring the Lord as best as you can with his help. As to him say... um, when we have reached the end of our endurance, 
might be getting it slightly wrong, but uh, his giving has only just began. As the burdens grow greater, God's grace is greater than our burdens. Now, you might not be in this season right now. You might not be able to relate to this, but I can assure you, if you're a true Christian, at some point you will. At some point you will hear that the same kinds of things, maybe for an individual, maybe God forbid, but even for a member in the church, maybe just that voice in your head, that your conscience. You're feeble. You can't do it. It won't accomplish anything. You're wasting your time. God is disgusted with what you do. He thinks it's pathetic. But what we need to see is this. The irony of ironies here is if it was so pathetic, why are they so angry? If what they were doing was so useless and so ineffectual and it wasn't going to accomplish anything, why was Sambalat when he heard indignant and mocking? It's because actually the reality was the opposite was the case. And you can be sure if you're hearing these voices, if you're hearing these accusations, it is because Satan has been disturbed. And he is disturbed, he's vexed, and he's angry. And in fact, actually, what I love about this is the ones who are helpless are not the Jews. The ones who are helpless are Sambalat and Tobiah, because they can do nothing. This anger, this indignant frustration comes out a sense of their powerlessness. And that's why he assaults Christians like this, Satan. Because he knows that you're his and none can snatch you from his hand. All he can do is shout and scream and bark and whisper and lie and deceive. That's all he can do. But he can do nothing more than that. If only we would believe Satan is powerless to stop the church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it sometimes in our loved ones in our friends and family who do not know the Lord it gets worse before it gets better this was the case in my conversion I'm not preaching myself I pray in referring to myself I'm simply only highlighting God's grace Um, but I remember when I just before I was converted things were at their lowest they could be On the eve when God began to work on my soul, I had assaulted my father, I had verbally abused him, and I was getting to a point where if I was two years older, I would have been thrown out of the home. What I didn't know, and I have subsequently learnt, that three little old ladies at my parents' church prayed for me weekly. And God had mercy on my soul. And from that evening, about a year later, I was born again and saved and yielded my life to the Lord. But if you had said to my dad on that evening, when he went upstairs with a bruised face and a broken heart, that his son would be a new creation a year later, he would have probably, understandably so, laughed in your face. The reason I'm saying this is because Satan... Is, the mur- is a murderer and a destroyer. And he has been since the beginning. Now, Satan does not know those whom are chosen before the creation of the world. That, that was something that was in the eternal counsel and Godhead. Nevertheless, though, Satan is more powerful and perceptive than we can imagine. And Satan, I do believe, can discern and second guess perhaps individuals God is going to work on. 
in providence. And that he may set his full artillery to try and destroy these individuals before he has mercy, before the Lord has mercy on them. What this proves is that the spiritual conflict we're in is, is real. There's nothing more that Satan is focused on than keeping men and women, boys and girls, from Jesus Christ. That, that's why, I, in one sense, this is picking up from what I said yesterday. Yes, things are bad. Yes, they're really bad. And yes, this nation's a mess. And you, you look at what's going on and what they're doing to children. And it, you look at what God looks down on London. You must just think, like, wow, like. But this is the thing, though. It makes me think to myself, but God hasn't destroyed London. He hasn't. And, and there's a sense in which maybe, you just, you just cling to the hope that maybe God's going to come in at the point of extremity in this nation when you think things couldn't get any darker and he's going to transform lives. And again, a lot of people will just go, he's speechless. Satan hates the kingdom of God. Satan hates God. Satan hates individuals that are moving forward towards God. And Satan hates the souls of those he senses may be seeking God. But we need not despair. In verse 4, they pray, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. And I just love verse 6. <laughs> so we built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind, literally a heart, to work. So I hope some of these things have been instructive to you this evening. And I hope that they will prepare you to stand in the evil day, if that evil day ever comes. And it will come. May God give us all grace to recognise Satan's devices for what they are. Lies, deception. And when our heart is overwhelmed, let, let us... Let us pray that God would lead us to the rock that is higher than we are. Uh, thou shalt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon uh, thee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's so rich in instruction. We thank you that all scripture is breathed out by God so that the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God may be equipped for every good work. I pray for this fellowship, Lord. I'm sure there are before me pains and agonies and trials that I cannot even fathom. I'm sure that before me there are many battle-wounded wounded soldiers of Christ who have been wounded by the hammer blows of the evil one. For some, of, some here it's secret blows that no one knows about. But I do pray, Lord, for these dear brothers and sisters uh, that they would look beyond their weakness to the one who has saved them. And the one who has decided to shame the strong by saving the weak. To shame the wise by saving the foolish. And I pray that, that in years ahead this church could have a testimony. That though feeble and though perhaps feeling that at times the work was slow and difficult. I pray they would have a testimony of God's grace working and being provided in abundant measure effectually for your glory in this place. And I do particularly pray, Lord, again, for ones and twos represented in the congregation week by week who do not know you. We know Satan will do all he can to call souls to stop seeking after you. Wherever there is a flicker of seeking, 
he will be there to lie and to take away the word which has been sown. We do pray and beg of you, Lord, that you would prevail in their souls and save them for your glory. We ask these things through the most mighty and wonderful name that there is, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.